Good morning. Glad to see each of you here this morning. And um, as Stephen was sharing a bit ago, um, we are, it's hard to believe, a year has gone by, but we are heading into that time of the year in which we uh, focus on missions. And um, those of you that may be kind of new to our fellowship, um, missions is an important part of who we are and what we have been. And um, every year in the spring, we, we focus on uh, what God wants to do through us as individuals and, and as a church to help reach the world for Jesus Christ. And um, uh, as that calendar has been passed around, whether you signed it or not, I hope that you will begin over these next few weeks to begin to ask God, God, what do you want to do through me? What do you want to do in reaching the world, in helping and assisting our missionaries and other projects of missions around the world uh, that we, we will have uh, a partnership with? And so I, we have always said, all we do is ask that you would pray and ask God what he wants to do through you and just be obedient to whatever he may speak to your heart. So as that's on our radar over the next few weeks, we'll be, I'm sure, mentioning it some more. But uh, just, just begin. God, what do you want to do through me in regards to reaching the world for the, with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, as you know, we have been in the book of Philippians now for uh, a month, and, um, or more than a month, maybe. And um, anyway... We have been looking at what Paul has to say to us in, in light of us as Christians and how we are developing. What does it look like to be a mature Christ follower? What does it look like for me to grow in my faith? And Paul, in speaking to the uh, Philippians, uh, used the words of our title, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And this morning we are going to talk about the passionate pursuit that we as Christians are called uh, to have. Paul said in, in this chapter we're looking at this morning, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. When I think about the background of the three people that we met in the very first lesson of the book of Philippians, there was Lydia, the businesswoman. There was the slave girl that was demon-possessed and a fortune teller. There was the Philippian jailer where Paul and Silas were in prison. And every one of them in their own way was indifferent towards God. They were even hostile towards God. And yet God, by the cross and through the, the, the preaching and the ministry of the Apostle Paul, brought these three people and others like them to himself, making a way for them to be justified through no action of their own, but through their faith in Christ. What kind of response should there be to that kind of a God? If there really is an almighty creator God 
who all of us have offended, all have sinned and come short of his glory, but who despite that offense loved us so much that he took the punishment for that offense, making it possible that we could have right standing before Almighty God. Wouldn't that be the greatest news in all of human history? What kind of response to that kind of news would be a proper response for me to have? We're going to look at what Paul has to say and what other, some other Christians uh, may have to say uh, about this question. I grew up in a Christian home. All my life, I can't remember ever not going to church. But yet as a young lad, I recognized that I personally had a need to confess my sins and repent of my sins uh, and to begin to seek to walk with God for myself. Throughout the Bible, we find men and women who demonstrated uh, an angst, uh, a deep yearning for more of God. (coughs) I've never had much tolerance for living by a list of do's and don'ts. There has to be more than that. (coughs) But I've always been drawn to those who echo the sentiments uh, of David the psalmist. In chapter 63 of the Psalms, he says, Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. This is not David saying, you know, I really want to be a better guy. I, I, I just have this desire to, to just be a little more spiritual than what I've been. No, this is a yearning from the very depths of his being. There are in these lines an intensity of longing, a craving that can't be satisfied by anything else than God. With an active, deep soul desperation, David is crying out, God, I've got to have you. He continues. He says, I have seen you in your sanctuary gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with the songs of joy. For David, God was not just some distant God or grandfather type. He wasn't just some theological concept. For him, God was an all-consuming person. He said, I lie awake thinking of you, meditating upon you through the night. Because you are my helper, I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your strong right hand holds me securely. Let me ask you something. Do you resonate with what David was writing here? Well, you might find in the pages that David wrote that we call the Psalms, you might find that David, you might find David crying out, God, you're good, you're great, you're beautiful. But on the next page, you may also hear him cry out, God, where are you? Have you abandoned me? 
And, and, and as you read through the Psalms, you find a guy that we can relate to. David's Psalms are, are like an, the anatomy, breaking down, dissecting the soul. He captures the highs and the lows. He captures the joy and the pain. He captures the victory and the suffering. But through it all, he shows God as being sovereign and loving to the ones who will seek him with all of their heart. By and large, I think today in today's church, the church has become uncomfortable with this sense of passion. We don't want to be thought of as being a fanatic. And so we pull back into the comfort. We pull back into just not get too excited about this. We love the feeling of a worship experience. Uh, it's kind of like we come on Sunday morning to get our spiritual fix. But David is not pursuing an experience. David is pursuing God. And so in, in, in chapter 42, he says, As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. And that was not just a cute expression that David had to fill in so it rhymed with some other part of that psalm. Uh, but many times we turn those deep expressions uh, into just a cute decoration. And we put them maybe on a t-shirt and a mug or a, or, or, or a phone case and, and by doing so somehow feel that I am creating that identity as a, as a Christian. But what David is saying here is not some cute phrase. David is in pain. David is saying, oh God, how do I get there? How do I get more of you? He says it again in Psalm 27. He says, the one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections, meditating in his temple. Do we see that kind of desperation in our lives, in the life of church life in general today? Are we crying out like Moses who approached God and said, I want to see you, Lord. I want to see your glory. Does our singing, does our worshiping, does our prayers, does our does our tweets, does our Facebook updates in any way reflect an all-encompassing yearning for God? This is where Paul is going in chapter 3 of the book of Philippians. Nothing compares to God. Everything else, he says, is indeed rubbish compared to the all-surpassing worth of having and knowing Jesus. As we said, Paul is writing this book from prison in Rome. He's not sure if he'll be released. He's not sure if he'll be executed. And he's about to warn the Philippians to give them notice, and he warns them. And if you were writing from prison, having been in prison for your faith, maybe you would be writing about governmental uh, persecution and the suffering of the church. But Paul has a different warning for them. He says, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. 
I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Paul is warning the Philippians to watch out for what he called the dogs. Who are the dogs? The dogs were these Judaizers that had been converted to Christianity, but they had brought with them much of the legalism of Judaism. And so they were saying that if you're going to be a Christian, then you have to be circumcised. If you're going to be a Christian, then you have to not eat certain things and can only eat other things. And they brought with them all of these legalistic things that said, if you do this, then you are truly a follower of God. And so they want to set up a thing, a list of things uh, that they do well and expect everybody else to follow along. They want to say, well, I wasn't, I'm not as bad as what I was back in college. I'm not as bad as you are. And they use the scale that they have made to measure their own goodness. You may remember the story I've told it before, but the little boy who comes to his mom and says, Mom, I'm 10 feet tall. How do you know you're 10 feet tall? Well, he said, I measured myself. Well, where did you get the measuring stick? I made it myself, he says. <laughs> These people are still trying to use uh, their measurement uh, as a sort of evidence uh, of their superior spirituality and their higher quality of goodness than the rest around them. And they are, in fact, what we talked about last week, they are those that are scattered in the imaginations of their prideful hearts. And Paul says, watch out for that kind of faith, because that kind of faith is empty. Watch out for those kind of teachers and leaders who say, pay attention to me because I'm doing all these good things. And to demonstrate the emptiness of this pursuit, Paul puts himself on that scale. He says this, though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. What's he saying? He's saying basically this. If you think you have reason to boast, I have reason to boast all the more. I've never missed one Sunday morning of Sunday school. I've never missed a Sunday morning worship uh, service. I read my Bible every day and I pray every day. I've memorized the whole New Testament. I never say a cuss word except those that the church accepts. I never listen to, 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 to secular music. I, I've never seen an R-rated film except The Passion of the Christ. And we could go on and on with the list of things that I do and therefore I am. But he says the dogs stay focused on the do's and the don'ts and the I have or I've never. And, and he says, look what it does. Look what it accomplishes. Basically, Paul was saying, who cares? 
I did all that too. And on the scale, I'm better than you. But this is what he had to say about his list. He said, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Whatever good came from my self-improvement project that I say, if I do these things, if I try to be better, then therefore I will be whatever good doesn't give me a lick of standing before Almighty God. Because none of us can ever approach the righteousness of Jesus. Playing I'm good or I'm better is a game that won't work. And it ends in disaster and confusion. It's a losing game if we get there. Now, is Paul saying that those things are bad and we shouldn't do them? No. Real good could come from me being in church every Sunday morning. Real good does come from guarding my, my heart from what I watch. Real good does come in guarding my life in ways that protect me from evil. But as a mean of measuring my righteousness, these things fall short. Paul's unpacking the reasons for you to crave and to pursue Christ at all costs because even if we get all those good and morally superior attainments in our life, if, if we clean up our life and manage somehow to never struggle with those things that we used to struggle with and never meet Jesus, he says you're lost. You're actually attained a whole lot of nothing. You've just changed a lifestyle. You haven't changed a who you're related to. In the end, if you look great, and you sound great, and you act great, but you don't know Jesus, Paul is saying, who cares? That's a worthless pursuit. And so therefore, Paul says, every gain I got, I considered as loss for the sake of Christ. In comparison to the infinite gain of who Jesus is and my relationship to him, he said everything else is on the table. Everything else is sacrificable. Everything else is losable. He says everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing, of knowing Jesus, Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. The best of my best without Jesus looks like an overflowing porta potty compared to him. Paul is saying that if you are to pursue righteousness, Pursue Jesus. Don't, don't let looking good or being better than you were to be your goal. Let Jesus be the goal. So, so how hard should we seek after Jesus? Why, why should knowing him be my highest priority? Since Christ is infinite, there will always be more of him to be had. 
Even if you lived to be 110 and spent your whole life pursuing Jesus, you would never begin to unpack the fullness of who he is. There's always more of him to be had. We get so satisfied. I've been in church all my life. I go to church every Sunday morning. I kind of know it all. Well, you know, we just come to get, just kind of tipped off, you know, uh, topped off a little bit every Sunday so that we can get through the week, but I really got it all together. And that's not what Paul said. Paul said the life of a Christ follower is one that pursues him uh, to the exclusion of all else, that nothing else is as important as knowing Jesus. So don't get led astray by legalism. Don't get caught up in secondary pursuits. Know Jesus. When I was a teenager, I read the story of Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a missionary to Ecuador. And he had a burning desire to take the gospel to people that had never heard it. And he found a group of Indians back in the interior, the Aka Indians. And he and a group of the other missionaries decided that they were going to reach these people and began an effort of reaching out to them, of contacting this tribe through uh, their airplane, circling over the vision, and finally communicated with them to meet them down on the river, and they landed on a sandbank in the river. And They thought that they were making progress, but in that meeting, things went bad, and Jim Elliott and the four other missionaries became martyrs for the faith and their blood was spilt there on that sand. And it may seem like all a loss, but something that, De- that Jim Elliott said and, or wrote in, in some of his papers impacted me as a teenager. I wrote it in the flyleaf of my Bible and it's been a part of my thinking ever since. It's one of my favorite quotes. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. To Jim, he found God much sweeter than even life himself. And as his blood poured out there, it became uh, the seed of the church as as others followed and a church was birthed and, and that tribe today is Uh, most and many of them are followers of Jesus Christ. I see others that have similar sentiments. Martin Luther back in the Reformation said, I wish to devote my mouth and heart to you, to God. Do not forsake me, for if I ever should be on my own, I will easily wreck it all. Brother Lawrence, who wrote The Practice of the Presence of God, puts it this way, Our only business in this life is to please God. All beside is but folly and vanity. Oh, that we would have a yearning for God that so stirs us, that so transforms us, that so turns our life upside upside down that we are verily recognizable as the person that we were before God's love bowled us over. Paul said, For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. 
He is saying that all the persecution, all the suffering, all the pain, all the daily dying to self, all that he experienced in his flesh, it was worth it compared to knowing Jesus, to being with Jesus, to becoming like Jesus. And that's why Paul could start out this passage in chapter 3 by saying, whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. If we seek to know, to only know Jesus above all else, then at the end of our life, whether brought there by death or by the return of Jesus Christ, we will experience the forever joy of eternity with him as well. We've looked at David and we've looked at Paul and Jim Elliot and others. And you can see their passion for knowing Jesus above all things. But here's the question for you and me this morning. Do we have that kind of passion? Do we have that kind of passion for Jesus in our lives? Why, why are we so easily satisfied? Why is there this, why is this deep craving for God seemingly so uncommon? We are far too easily satisfied with our relationship with the Lord far too easily satisfied with where we are spiritually and okay I'm doing pretty good and not having that passion for more why do passages like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 not shake us to our boots he said not everyone who calls on me Lord Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven only those who actually do the will of my father in heaven will enter on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's law. Why are we terrified by a text like that? I think, I think I know at least part of the reason for that. We in our modern Christian culture have misunderstood this aspect of our faith. We have put seemingly all the weight of our, of our faith on the fact that we were converted, on the fact that we prayed a prayer somewhere, that, that somewhere we started on this walk in which we call ourselves a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, and little expectation on what comes after that. That my being a Christian is because I started the journey. This is what Paul was getting at in the last chapter, chapter 2, verse 12, where we looked at last week, that we should work out our salvation as God works in us. And he said to do it with fear and trembling. Why? Because he knows that pressing the supremacy of the gospel into the deepest reaches of our soul uh, and into our lives uh, is going to involve a lot of dying to self. And that's, that's work. That takes effort. And intentionality. It is a fearful, trembling thing to take up the cross and follow Jesus. But Jesus said we must do it, and Paul said we must do it. Trusting Jesus isn't just something we do in the act of conversion. We have to keep trusting him. We have to walk day by day in faith with him, feeling the weight of the cross daily knowing that God is at work in us and through us and believing that our suffering and our struggling is well worth it. Paul 
sees the fear and trembling of daily self-denial. He said that it's sharing his suffering, becoming like him in his death. You see, Paul takes the long view of things. He knows that if he will daily share in Christ's sufferings, he said in the end, we will share in Christ's resurrection. Instead of what often happens for us when we come to know the Lord, and I think that it it comes from a, a sincere place in our heart, is that our love for God's grace is replaced with a sense of obligation to please him. We start out by loving him, but then we begin to feel I've got to do this to get his love. And so we begin to live a life of just trying to to keep God pleased, trying to keep him from being angry, trying to keep him on our side. And it starts out with gratitude, but it's easily and naturally turns into trying to pay back the debt. Let me tell you this, you can't pay back the debt of what we owe Jesus Christ. You can't work hard enough or long enough to pay it back. What God wants with you was not that you would pay it back, but that you would love him, that you would have relationship with him. And if you do that, you will live a life that is pleasing to him. We move into a self-salvation mode, that if I do, then I will be. We need to ask ourselves instead, what moves me toward Jesus? What stirs my affections for Jesus? What is it that stirs me up to know him, to love him, to worship him? That will look differently in each of us because we're individuals with different personalities. But I think for all of us it will involve the scriptures because that's how God speaks to us. It will involve prayer because that's how we speak to God. It will involve worship and worship is much more than just getting together and singing on Sunday morning. Worship is a lifestyle. What stirs your affections for Jesus and for the gospel that he gives. Let me ask you, what robs your affections? What what gets your mind focused somewhere else? For most of us that maybe have walked with Jesus for a number of years, maybe the big things are out of your life. You don't even struggle with those things anymore. You probably don't go out into the parking lot somewhere and, and have to struggle with buying black tar heroin. You probably don't struggle this week uh, with, with robbing a bank. Those things are, we say, big sins. We're, we're, yeah, I don't have to struggle with them. But many times uh, we struggle and justify what sometimes we would even say are non-sins, uh, the little things. What Song of Solomon might call the little foxes that spoil the vine of our worship of God. Not things that are bad, but they can, they can, depending on who we are, take our focus off of him. Maybe it's just, you know, the, the sports that consume us. Maybe our life is a total wreck this morning because the Steelers aren't playing tonight. Maybe, maybe it's just laughing at things that have been put in a funny context on TV 
but God calls them wickedness. Maybe it's not spending the time in the word or in prayer that robs us from that fellowship with him. What moves you? What dampens your fervor for Christ? If we're living life in a pursuit of Jesus Christ as opposed to pursuit of just self-improvement, we will find those things that push us deeper into a relationship with him not further away from him, developing our list of do's and don'ts. Developing that list that, that just basically is the same badges of honor that Paul talks about that says we should throw away as garbage. In other words, if we're not careful, the good things that we can do, we begin to worship worship instead of worshiping him. We worship those things that we think make us better instead of those things that draw us into fellowship. Charles Swindoll put it this way, he said, tragically precious little in this hurried and hassled age promotes such intimacy. We have become a body of people who look more like a herd of cattle or on a stampede than a flock of God besides still green waters and green pastures and still waters. This is what we're looking at as we gaze at Christ. It's getting rid of the baggage, whether religious or otherwise, that distracts us from him alone. Paul told the Hebrews, he said, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. When we do that, we can run much faster to Jesus. By his death and resurrection, he broke the bonds that hold us back. He has set us free. He has given us life. He has given us the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to be and to do what he has asked us to do. So run. Make a break for it. Pursue him and him alone with force, with consuming passion. Why? Because the goal is knowing him. Not getting all the things on our list checked off. Yep, did that, did that, did that, doing that. Yep, I'm good. No, it is pursuing him. What stirs up your affections for Jesus? What, what robs you of those things? Sometimes we act as though we fear the answer to those questions. And yet answering those questions uh, can bring you to the deepest joy we can ever experience on this side of eternity. E. Stanley Jones was a missionary to India. And he wrote this, he said, The strangest thing on this planet is our fear of surrendering to the one safe place in the universe, God. We hug our present delusions, knowing deep down that there are delusions, but they are present, and we hug them for fear of the unknown. The earth, when it runs away from the sun, would simply run into darkness. When we run away from God, refuse to surrender ourselves, then we get one thing, the dark. Have you ever planted a plant in a pot and stuck it in a window? What does it do? It starts growing and leaning towards the sun, towards the window, doesn't it? Towards the light. And you can take that pot and turn it around. 
And you come back the next day and it has turned and it started growing again towards the sun. No matter what you do, no matter what circumstance you put it in, it's going to grow towards the sun. That's what Paul's calling us to. Bend towards the sun. Run towards Jesus. That no matter what happens in life, no matter how we're turned upside down, that the light is there, Jesus is there, and that's the way we're going to run. Pursue Jesus with a passion that exceeds any other passion in your life. What does a mature Christian look like? It is one that has discovered what the true priority is in life and pursues it with passion. The true priority is Jesus, and I'm going to pursue him with all that I am. Will you stand with me? I hope that this spoke to you on some level. I hope that you have a desire that maybe is even rekindled this morning to pursue Jesus with more intensity than we have. That we wouldn't be so easily satisfied with, yep, okay, I'm a Christian. I go to church on Sunday morning. I'm pretty good. I'm better than them. I don't do this. I don't do that. I do these things, and therefore. But really, my passion is to know Christ to dig into those unfathomable depths of who Jesus is that I'll never really fully get there because I'm always pursuing the light. I want us to just bow our heads this morning. And if in your heart God is speaking to you and you just want to do something to help some men in your mind, God, this week I am going to seek to pursue you more passionately. God, in this moment, create something in me that will cause me to focus this week like a laser on who you are. Just put your hand up as a commitment and say, I, that's what I want. I am going to pursue Jesus in a new and intense way to become the person that he wants us to be. I hope that you will take from here and go with Jesus, pursuing him with all your Father God, you are good God, and you love us so much that you gave your only begotten Son that we could have relationship with you. Father, I, 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 there's nothing in all of the universe that is that valuable as your life, and you gave it. Lord, help us not to treat it lightly. Help us not to just be okay with it. Lord, help us this week to pursue it with our whole being, to become like Jesus, to become who you want us to be through re our relationship with you that changes and transforms. So God, we commit to passionately pursue you this week that you will be able through in our lives and through our lives do things that couldn't have been accomplished when we're just focused on what we are and what we can do. Use us. Open doors. Give us opportunities for God to be seen and to shine in our lives. Help us to bend towards the light no matter what this week throws at us. We pray it in the holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen.
We appreciate your help with the chairs again.